Well, if you have a Bible, if you would turn to Joshua 7, I'm going to keep moving on here in Joshua, beginning in verse 1 of Joshua 7, and then it says, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Well, let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. So there went up thither of the people about three thousand men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even unto Shabiram, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say? When Israel turns their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land, they'll hear of it and shall environ us around and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do to thy great name? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up. Wherefore liest thou upon thy face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and dissembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you any more, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families thereof, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by households, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has wrought folly in Israel. Why would not Achan come forth then and confess He's got to know he's going to be found out. Man, he has got to be sweating bullets. Goes on. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarhites, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man. And Zabdi was taken, and he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him, and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. 
When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran into the tent and behold, it was hid in his tent and the silver under it. And they took them out of the midst of the tent, brought them unto Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them into the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. And so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger and wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. Pretty solemn chapter, isn't it? So we don't need to be solemn today. We just need to hear what the Lord has to say because it's, you know, you look at this chapter seven, it's a totally opposite picture of what we just read in chapter six, isn't it? I mean, totally opposite. So, you know, chapter six, it's an account of the victory, faith, and blessing that God's people experienced. All of them in that chapter were faithful and obedient to what God had given them to do. And he gave them overwhelming success through the power of his spirit, didn't he? Everything went well. And it's like God is saying to us through this story, through these chapters. In chapter 6, he's saying, this is the path to follow. If you want to experience my presence and blessing, this is the path to follow. Here is the path to victory and glory. Read it, meditate on it, and live. Obey what it says here in chapter 6 and live. But here's chapter 7, just the opposite. It's not victory glory and blessing, but it's what? It's looking at defeat, humiliation, and at the end of that chapter is judgment. And the whole nation, the whole nation is brought down by the sin of one man. And you say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, that's just the way God does things, doesn't he? So what he's saying is he's saying, I'm going to hold you accountable for what goes on in your midst. And that's true with us here. And we have dealt with people, haven't we? We've had to deal with people to where they've had to be removed at times. It's not anything anybody likes to do. But he's also saying we need to be aware and Israel needs to be aware what you do is affecting everybody else. How you're living your week, what you're doing, your testimony, what you bring into this meeting, it affects everybody. And that's what we're seeing here. And so God is saying through chapter 7, there was a path in chapter 6. That's the path I want you to follow. Here's a path in chapter 7. This is a path you need to avoid. Avoid this path. This is the path of disobedience, humiliation, and judgment. But read of this and learn. Be wise. That's what he's saying to us, isn't this? It's, it's a warning. It's what he has it in there for. So there's a great principle that's set forth in this chapter that is throughout the entire Bible, and that is this, that God blesses his people. And what happens when sin comes in? It stops the flow of blessing. And that's true whether it's in an individual's lives or in the life of a church, in the, in the life of a congregation. Judgment then will then fall, has to fall, doesn't it? Because God is faithful. 
And so it's either going to fall from the individual themselves or God's going to bring that judgment. Because 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when you don't, guess what happens? Judgment doesn't always have to mean it's over and you're under a pile of rocks. It could be. But it could just be you get the divine, bam, spanking. That's what he means by that a lot of times. And we'll see that later. Judgment falls, it's not necessarily over. Because we read the other principle we see in the Bible, and this is all throughout the Bible, that God blesses his people. Read the book of Judges. It's cyclical this way. He blesses his people. They sin. They go into bondage. He judges them. But when they repent, he brings back the blessing because God delights in mercy. He does delight in mercy. So what we have going on here, Israel, they're entering a new era. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they've got a new beginning. So all of the people have crossed over the Jordan River by faith. The entire nation trusted God and obeyed God and saw Jericho fall flat. The entire nation was involved in that. Now, do you think the devil is just going to sit back when that happens, sit in his lawn chair and sip lemonade? There is no way. So what he's doing is he's going to seek to bring Israel down by the only way he knows how. He's going to bring in sin and disobedience. And he's going to do it this time through one man, Achan. Going to try to bring that nation down through the sin of one man, Achan. And listen, that's another pattern that we have in the Bible. It happened in the early church, the day of Pentecost, the power of God manifested itself while they're doing what? Praying and what? In one accord. That's critical, isn't it? We need to be in one accord here, don't we? (laughs) We really do. We all have to be on the same page, pulling for each other. That's what happened, praying in one accord, and they're in there, 120 people in a mighty rushing wind. The sound of a mighty rushing wind comes. Tongues of fire on More people than we have here. you imagine looking up here? Tongues of fire on every head. And then it says the Holy Spirit comes on them and they began to speak in tongues. All 120 of them, it says, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the the Spirit and the power of God was so strong on those 120, a great crowd gathers around them. Wants to know what's going on here? Are these people drunk? And Peter stands up and says, wait a minute, it's too early in the day. We're not drinking. No, no, no. This is what was prophesied by Joel. This is that. And unlike what my seminary would tell me, it wasn't fulfilled then. It's still going on, isn't it? It wasn't fulfilled. That's just when it began. Preached under the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 souls, it says in Acts 2, were saved, water baptized, and they also received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same promise, Peter says, it's to you and to as many as are far off. And it doesn't say it. I'm telling you, 3,000 people spoke in tongues that day. So that's 3,120 people speaking in tongues, cleansed, filled with the Spirit of God and the power of God let loose on the earth from Jerusalem that day. That's what we have going on there. And once again, do you think the devil... It's just going to sit back. It's a new era again, isn't it? God's fulfilling his promises just like he was in Joshua's day. And the people then were united in their obedience and faith. Listen to what it says. The multitudes of them that believed, this is the early church, were of one heart and of one soul. And it says, and with great power 
gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And Satan is not going to just sit back and say, ho-hum. This group is being led to destroy his kingdom. That's what it's all about, isn't it? And so what did he do? In Joshua's day, he found one willing accomplice, Achan, didn't he? In this day, he found two willing accomplices, a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira, conspired to hold back what they said was God's. Same thing Achan did, same type of sin. And Peter told Ananias this. This is how we know it's the devil. He says, why has Satan filled thine heart? to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land. And Ananias and Sapphira did what? At his word, fell dead in judgment, didn't they? Just like Achan. Why? You see, man, that seems awful harsh, awful cruel. Well, really, it's God and his love. He had to teach his people in both cases early on that he takes sin seriously and he's not going to let sin come up and mess up his name or his cause. That's what he's teaching them. Because in both cases, the fear of God came upon the people. And as a result of that, the early church and Israel was blessed. They never lost another battle. You realize that? Joshua never lost another battle. That was the only defeat. And listen... After the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, here's what it says in the book of Acts. It says, great fear fell on the church and upon as many as heard these things. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira? And it goes on to say, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them. People are afraid to join that church if they're not serious. But then it says, believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. But it's a holy church. You're not having this corrupt church because corruption was allowed to stay in there. So God loves his church. And here's a principle. God dealing with his people. It's unchanging throughout the Bible. And that is this. God is holy. And God loves his people. He deals consistently with his people. And there is only one thing that can spoil his blessings coming through. And what is that? Sin. Like I said, it's true in individual lives and churches. And until sin is confessed, judged, and removed, it'll hinder the flow of blessings. So God said this to Solomon when he dedicated the temple. The presence of God was so heavy, the priest couldn't stand. The cloud comes in. But he says this to Solomon. Here's this principle again, Second Chronicles 7. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land. It's all because of the people's sin. So God says, I bring this on the land and the people because of what they've done. He says, if I do that, or if I send pestilence among my people, he says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So if sin has brought anything even in your life or in this church, when we repent, God says, I'm glad to pour out a blessing if my people, which are called by my name, will just seek my face, humble themselves, repent, turn from their wicked ways. The blessings will flow again. That's the principle. Isn't that what we see? All through the Bible. And so I want to look here in Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. The first thing I want to look at is the consequences of sin. 
So, you know, the story we read here is pretty straightforward. Israel's just come off this stunning victory. I mean, that's stunning what happened to Jericho, and they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They've crossed the Jordan. They've renewed the covenant by circumcision. They've observed the Passover. They've seen Jericho leveled to the ground, and they're thinking, hey, life is good, and we are more than conquerors. We are marching on into Canaan's land with Jesus before us. You know, as the song goes, that's, that's kind of the way they're looking at everything. And they like their odds. They like their odds going in there against Ai. Joshua sends the spies. And look, verse 2, it says, He sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethphazen on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, Go up, view the country. The men went up and viewed it. And, you know, here's how they come back. They come back like one of those, if you watch old shows, the Mayberry RFD. They come like Barney Fife acts like he's taking a couple judo lessons and he's going to use it on a hardened criminal. You know, he's a little overconfident, and that's kind of how they are. You know, they come back, well, look, they tell Joshua, we don't need everybody this time. Just two or 3,000 people will do. Let everybody else just relax. Look, just relax, Andy. It's a piece of cake. You know, that's what they're like. They're like overconfident about the whole thing. And have you ever had that happen to you? You feel like a spiritual giant because you just gotten an answer to prayer, and then you think, Lord, the next situation comes, I can handle this. And you really don't take it to the Lord in prayer. You just think everything's just flowing along. Only to fall on your face. I've had that happen many times. You think you can handle things in your own wisdom, in your flesh or whatever, and it doesn't work because the Bible says, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We should never trust in the flesh. We sang that song, I need thee every hour, and that is more true than any of us realize. Because Jesus said what? Without me, John 15, you can do nothing, absolutely nothing without him. Samson fell into that snare, do you know that, of overconfidence. He forgot that his power came from God and only worked when he kept his vow. You know, you get these little kids' books. He didn't get his power from lifting weights. That wasn't where his strength come from. It was supernatural, and I'm saying it left quickly, didn't it? One haircut and it was gone. You think about that. And he didn't know it. And that's what happens to us a lot of times. We've done things. We think we're getting away from it. Life seems to be moving on pretty good. And then we wake up one day and realize, where's the Lord? He's not around. And that's what happened to Samson. He got his haircut, got a close haircut, as a matter of fact. And at Delilah, the Philistines are coming and he tells himself, I'll go out as at other times before. I'll shake myself. And it says this about Samson, he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. That's what happened to Israel here, isn't it? They didn't know that the Lord had departed from them as they went up to Ai. We'll seek the Lord when it's a crisis, don't we? A lot of times we'll press in, but when the crisis is over, what happens to us then? That's what we've got to remember. And look at how quick Israel's situation changed. Look at the very last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, 27, it says, So the Lord, after this great victory, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Blessings, fame, victory, oh, they're on the top of the mountain. And what happens in verse 7? The first thing it says is, but, but, things changed that quickly. But the children of Israel committed a trespass. So the spies are confident. They tell Joshua, hey, this isn't going to be a problem. Everything's under control. And Joshua takes their advice. You know, there's three times spies are sent out in the Old Testament. 
And two of the times the spies come back and they give advice on this is what we should do. And when the person took that advice, it always ended up in a disaster. And one other thing we have here is Joshua didn't pray, did he? We don't read about that he prayed. So Israel's routed. Look what it says, verse 4 and 5. So there went up thither of the people 3,000 men like the spies recommended, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote them, about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate even to Shabiram and smote them in the going down. Wherefore, it says, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so these mighty men of Israel, with all their confidence, they are turning tail, and it's a steep Ascent to go up from Jericho to Ai, very steep, 15 miles, but it's a long, hard climb up. And I'm telling you, they're making a fast retreat down, probably falling all over themselves. 3,000 people trying to get away, 36 of them killed, the rest of the 3,000 flee. And look what it says at the end there again in verse 5. Where are they at now? It smoked them to the going down that mountain. It says, wherefore the hearts of the people, this is the people of Israel, melted and became what? As water. And look, compare that, turn back to chapter 2. This is what we were reading before. Look back in chapter 2, verse 11. This is what Rahab said. This is how the people in Canaan land felt about Israel. She said, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. So how quickly things have changed, haven't they? Everything's totally reversed. Before the people were afraid of Israel, their hearts melted, were like water. Now Israel's in that position. Didn't take it long to change. From the mountaintop to the valley. And that's what we have here. The older people are going to remember this. Back in the day, ABC's Wide World of Sports, they had their little introduction. And the way they would say that was they're spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And you see some scare that about half got killed, you know, because he went off the ski thing. But that is Israel we have right here. They've gone from the thrill of Jericho to the agony of Ai. And Joshua and them, they are so distressed over this. They mourn. Look at verse 6. And Joshua, he tore his clothes, fell to the earth upon his faces before the presence of the Lord, the ark of the Lord, until the eventide, he and the elders of Israel, and put dust upon their heads. He goes before the ark, the presence of God. He pours out his complaint to God. He's got no idea why Israel's defeated. Has no idea. And he's like, alas, why have you done this? Wouldn't it have been better for us to just stay on the other side of the Jordan? I mean, he's sort of heading into unbelief. He's sort of accusing God of why have you done this to us instead of thinking, wait a minute, God is faithful. I've seen his faithfulness. There's got to be some other problem. But Joshua doesn't come at it that way. He doesn't know what's going on. But you think about it here. Think about this. God is sovereign, isn't he? We know that. He could have kept all of this from happening, couldn't he? None of this had to happen. He could have had Achan caught in the act when he's stealing that stuff. Somebody could have seen him do it. Hey, what are you doing? Turned him into Joshua. That could have happened. That easily could have happened. He could have impressed Joshua to pray. He could have impressed Joshua, don't listen to the spies. You go on and send 30,000 people instead of 3,000. But he didn't do any of that, did he? He's in control because he wants Israel and us to learn a lesson from the start. And you know, 
two things he wants to, to learn here, and he was wanting to teach Israel, which is why he allowed this whole thing happened. And one is that we cannot sin against God and escape his all-knowing eye because he sees everything we do, and as a result of that, he is to be feared, isn't he? Shouldn't the Lord be feared? Because no one is going to sin without his knowledge. Moses told him, be sure your sin will find you out. So whether it's lust, fornication, theft, whether you're stealing from God by not giving like you should, or you're overcharging a customer just because you can. That's a form of theft. You're losing your cool on the freeway, you don't think anybody knows it, or you come in here and you got resentment against your brother or your sister. And I'm saying God knows that. You're not getting away with it. None of us are because he says, know this, that your sin will find you out. And the second thing he wants to teach him here is that God's people will never succeed if they're disobedient. And they had to learn that in a vivid way. Look in verse 12. You know, he tells them, hey, they have sinned in verse 11 and transgressed my covenant. But look in verse 12. He says, therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither, he says, will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed thing from among you. And so God is saying to them, if you don't get rid of the sin that is in your midst, He's telling them it's a grave thing. He says, I will no longer be with you. And that to me is the most devastating thing you could ever hear God say, isn't it? I will no longer be in your midst because without his presence, we and they are nothing. So back in Exodus 33, God had threatened Israel and Moses and he said, you all can go on into the promised land, but I'm not going in there with you. I'm not going, you're going to go in by yourselves. I'll let you have the land. And what did it say happened? Because here's the people that are worshiping that false god, that calf. It said they ripped off all their ornaments. They're like, they're mourning. It said that's an evil report God gave him. I'm not going to go with you. And even the people, the sinful people realize we don't want that. And Moses goes on to say, he goes, Lord, if you're not going to go with us and you're not going to go with me into that land, I don't even want to go in there. Because your presence, his presence is everything, isn't it? And without God's presence in our church and in our individual lives, we are nothing. And I would say life's not even worth living. Honestly, that's the way I would look at it right now. <laughs> when I got saved, the presence of God meant everything to me. And experiencing that in all the different ways he does that. And to lose that, it's like, what is worth giving up for that? Yeah, right. And look what he says. He says it again. Look in verse 13. He says, up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against Tamar. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there's an accursed thing in the midst of you, O Israel. He said, and so because of that, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from before you. Say, nothing is ever going to work right in your life. Because sin has caused me to depart, and when I'm gone, nothing's going to work like it should, spiritually, in any other way. That's what he's saying. And so, what if God came to you, or came to me, and said, if you don't deal with this ongoing sin in your life, I will no longer be with you anymore. Can you imagine that? What if you're in an ongoing sin and you know it, and God came to you and he said, 
That's enough. Isn't that what he said to Israel, though? Isn't that what we read? Isn't that what he told them? If you don't deal with this sin, I will no longer be with you. That's what he told them, isn't it? Yes. So that's all I'm saying. Why couldn't he say that to us? I think he could. It's serious. So we're not talking about sinless perfection, are we? Everybody has things they're dealing with. But we're talking about serious ongoing sin. And I'm saying, I've been saved 30 some years. And I can think of at least a couple times, if not more, God has spoken that way to me. If you don't deal with this, it's all over with. And you're like, oh, he would never say that. Well, I know he said it to me. Maybe he's never said anything like that to you. And there's been times I have been severely chastised. And the Lord's like, you need to deal with this or it's going to get worse. And that's the way it is. Ask King David if you think God's not serious about sin. Boy, he got chastised. I think he learned his lesson, didn't he? The old pain-pleasure principle we talked about. So there's consequences to sin, isn't there? That's what God's showing us here. He takes sin seriously even if we don't. I can tell it's getting quiet. We can't just avoid things in the Bible, can we? Because they make us uncomfortable. Or they're distasteful because this is in here, so I didn't just skip right to chapter 7. We went right through chapter 6, up to chapter 7. <laughs> so we got to deal with the things God wants us to deal with and not just overlook them or skip on to something else because we always want to hear something light and fluffy all the time. Well, wait a minute. The Bible's not light and fluffy, and we are wanting to hear the whole counsel of God. Amen? Amen. That's, right. That's all I'm saying. So. There's consequences. That's the first point. Consequences of sin. We clearly see that. They suffer defeat. God threatens to withdraw his presence if they don't deal with it. And the second thing I want to look at here in chapter 7 is the nature of sin. The nature of Achan's sin or just sin in general. So what did Achan do that was wrong? What did he do? Look there in verses 19 to 21. It gives the details. And it says, And Joshua said unto Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. You tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. Look what he says, verse 21. He says, When I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. So all of Israel had been clearly warned, including Achan. Look back in chapter 6 in verses 18 and 19. And here's where this happened before they went into Jericho. They were clearly warned. Look, God gave them a word. Verse 18 of chapter 6 and ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto who? The Lord. And he says, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the silver and the gold were the Lord's. They were the Lord's spoil, the victory, all the victories were the Lord's. All the spoils technically were his. It's just he allowed the people to have them later on. But the first fruits, traditionally, it's just like when you get a paycheck. 
for any money. The first fruits aren't yours, they're the Lord's, to recognize that it all comes from Him. It all belongs to Him. The only reason we have power to get any wealth, to get anything, is because of Him. That's what it says in the book of Deuteronomy. And so it goes back to Him. Jericho was God's victory, and Achan stole from God. He robbed God. I would think, and you would think, wouldn't you think that would, God would be like the last person that you would think to steal from if you're a thief? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if I was somebody that was going to break into a house because I was a thief, you know the last house I would break into? You know which one that would be? The White House. Because that would probably be the last house you ever broke into, and it might be the last day of your life. In other words, you don't mess with somebody that's up there. You don't steal from the big people. That's trouble. <laughs> And so, who's the biggest of all? And Achan, you're just like, that doesn't even make sense. And his sin was not done in ignorance, was it? I mean, we just read it. The word was clear. God told him, stay away from the accursed thing, lest you make yourself accursed. And make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. So, here's what his sin was, and here's what brought the judgment on him. He is defiant. It's like he is thumbing his nose to God and just like, I'm taking this. I know this is supposed to be yours. I'm taking it anyways. And you know what? The fact he hit it tells you what? He knew it was wrong to do, didn't he? That's why he dug a hole and hit it. Before we get on, Mr. Aiken, how many times do we know God has said things to us clearly in his word? And we say, well, I don't care whether it's criticizing the government, the elected officials, whether it's criticizing your brother or sister, whether it's getting nervous about how, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and you're worrying about it, and on and on and on. How many times do we know that God clearly says, this is how I want you to live, and we do it anyways? Why? Because we know God is gracious, and He is gracious. But this chapter here should be a warning to us. You can't tread on his graciousness and his mercy and take it lightly because one day you might find out, uh-oh, I messed up. Shouldn't have done that. And look at verse 21. Look at the progressions. Look down at that verse, the progressions of the verbs that happened there. We're talking about the nature of sin. Achan said, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. Saw, coveted, took, and hid. And those exactly fit the pattern of sin when it entered the Garden of Eden with Eve. It all began with the eyes. It says all four of those things is what happened in the Garden of Eden when sin took place. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. So she fixed her eyes on something that was forbidden. And that's what Achan did. It's not what he saw, it's how he saw it. Because Achan was dissatisfied with what God was providing and how God was providing it. And he saw a way to get what he wanted without having to depend on God. Because hadn't God promised every Israelite, you're going to have your own land, your own house. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You'll have more than you could ever contain. Isn't that what he had promised them? And Achan's saying, I'm not satisfied with the way all this is going. I'm seeing what I have in front of me right now. Because the gold and silver that he took, they estimated that was more than a man would earn in his entire lifetime. 
And he's thinking, I got that. I'm set in that Babylonian garment, which is called goodly. What that means is it was chic. So he was going to look like Aiken from downtown once he got settled in and pulled that garment out. That's what he wanted. So he's saying, hey, I'm tired of these old shepherd clothes. Yeah, they haven't worn out, but, you know, wearing the same suit for 40 years has gotten a little old. And he sees that colorful Babylonian garment, and that's Babylon. That's where style came from. That's like New York City. And he's like, I wanted that. I want that. So he coveted. He saw, and then it says he coveted. He desired what was not rightfully his because we've already said it was God's. And he violated the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. It's the root of the violation of every other commandment against God and man. I saw. I coveted is what it said. And covetousness is total self-centeredness. When you covet, that's what you're doing. So there's this progression. You see, you covet. And when you do that, what's the next thing that happens? Then you take you're going to act on eventually. You let something stay in your heart. You look at pornography long, and you're going to have problems. You're going to be hooked. You lust after women, and you get the opportunity you will take. You see, you look, you take, you covet. That's what happens. That's the progression. You'll eventually act on what's in your heart. And that's what James 1 says. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. And I heard this. I thought this was good. Sin in anticipation and imagined is not sin in reality. Sin in anticipation and imagined is not sin in reality. In other words, you're not going to get out of sin what you think you will. It's never as it really is. Because James said sin, when it's finished, when it's run its course, when you're done with it, it brings forth death. So everybody, no matter what sin it is you're getting ready to commit, you think that sin is going to bring forth not death, but happiness, don't you? Otherwise we wouldn't sin. But think about Achan. Think about him. He stole the gold. He stole the silver and the garment thinking he's set for life. But he never enjoyed any of it, did he? Thinking he's set for life, didn't enjoy any of it. All that did for him, his sin did what James says. It brought forth what? Sin and death and misery. The wages of sin is death. That's the way it is. The prodigal son, he's thinking, man, let me get my inheritance and go out and I will spend it on any pleasure in life I can. He's thinking that is going to bring me happiness. I'm not liking it here with my father's house and all of his rules. And yet, what did he end up? Just like Aiken, he ended up miserable until he finally came to his senses, came back to his father's house. So think of any one sin you've committed that brought lasting peace and joy. Just think of any sin you've done that's brought you that, lasting peace and joy. We don't look at it that way, though, do we? You see, you covet, you take, and then what's the last thing you do? You hide. That's what sinners do. Sin always leaves you hiding. Achan tried to hide his sin from God. 
And people are trying to hide their sin from God every day. That's what Adam and Eve did, didn't they? All of a sudden, the knowledge they thought they were going to gain wasn't the knowledge they wanted. And what was pure and innocent became unclean. And they hid from the presence of the Lord. And people do it all the time. They try to hide because they know they're not right in the eyes of God. They got their whole life geared to get away from God. That's the way I was for 21 years of my life. I didn't want to face that. So hobbies, work, careers, philosophies that deny the existence of God, that he doesn't exist. You know what people are like? They're like, did you ever do this when you were a little kid? I did. Where you think if you can't see them, then they can't see you, even though you just got your hands over your eyes or whatever, got your head buried somehow. And that's the way men are. They say, hey, if we just suppress, that's what it says in the book of Romans, that we just suppress this knowledge that we have of God so we can hide our guilt and try to cover it up. If we could just do that, we'll feel comfortable with ourselves. And the Bible says their minds become darkened and their hearts are what? Foolish. He said they're foolish doing that. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So does anybody in here really think they can hide their sin from the living, holy, almighty God of the Bible, of the universe? Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Ecclesiastes 12 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Everything, every thought we have, every deed we've done, nothing's hidden. It's all going to be brought out before God one day. And look what happened. Look at how Achan was exposed. Look in verse 23. Look what it says here. And they took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them unto Joshua. This is all the things that Achan had stolen and unto all the children of Israel. And look what it says at the end of verse 23. And it says, it laid them out before the Lord. So it's bad enough to have your sin laid bare before Joshua and the children of Israel. But before the holy God of the universe, that is terrifying. And that's the way it's going to be one day that will happen because Paul wrote, in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, that we're all going to have to appear before that judgment seat one day. He says, knowing that, that'll be a terrible day. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, he says, we persuade men. Get right with the Lord. And I would persuade any young person in here now that's living in sin. Today is the day of your salvation. You're not getting away with anything. The Lord knows what's going on. Amen? Amen. So the last thing I want to look at here is the penalty of sin. So looked at the consequences of sin, the nature of sin, and the penalty of sin. So after Achan confessed his sin, Joshua and all Israel took Achan and all he had to the valley of Achor. Look in verses 24 to 26. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his ass and his sheep, his tent, all that he had, it's a mouthful. They brought them 
unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the valley of Achor unto this day. And Achor means trouble. And Joshua tells Achan, he says, man, you have troubled Israel and now you are going to be troubled. And it said they stoned him and everything he had. And I mean, he had a lot of stuff. It's not like this guy was a poor guy and he needed to steal. I mean, he's got oxen, sheep, donkeys, a lot of stuff. So they stone him. It says they stone him and they burn him and all he had. And they put more stones on top of that. And it's left there, it says, to this day. So it's a monument. But we have two monuments we've read about so far, don't we? So we've got one at Gilgal. They got 12 stones stacked up that is a monument to God's faithfulness to bring Israel into the land and of their faithfulness to obey him. That's what we see there. And we got this one, though. This is a different monument that is meant to have a different effect, isn't it? Because this is a monument to this is what happens when one of you is unfaithful and disobedient. Here are the consequences. And they would see that, wouldn't they? I mean, he had that left there as a monument. And that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. Behold, he said, behold, look, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward the goodness, if you continue in his goodness. That's what we have here. You can look at Gilgal, the goodness of God. Continue in his goodness. But here's another one over here. Behold, look at the severity of God. It's a truth. Nobody wants to hear it, but it is a truth that we need to deal with. If judgment came down on the head of Achan and his family, just like Ananias and Sapphira. And I mean, those are hard stories. I think they are hard stories to read, hard pills to swallow. But what they do and what they should do for us is give us a healthy fear and respect for the God that we serve. Because God is showing us, this is how I feel about sin. And Jesus, we went through this with Mark, he is not just filling up space in the book of Mark to say, look, you need to do whatever you need to do to make it into the kingdom of God. You need to cut off whatever you need to cut off, pluck out and cast away whatever it is, whatever the price is. Your eye, your hand, those things that are so precious to you. He's saying, I'm taking sin seriously and God does. That's what the Bible says. And he's saying, we need to too. Dire consequences, spare no sin. But I want to end on this note. The Valley of Achor and that pile of stones was not the end of the story, was it? Because as we said, when Israel dealt with her sin, God did what? He brought them back to Ai, didn't he? And he comes and he gives Joshua the same promise for Ai that he did for Jericho. So look in chapter 8, look in chapter 8, verse 1, look what it says. It, it doesn't end there with that pile of rocks in Achor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, fear not. You've dealt with the sin. Everything is okay. Fear not. Neither be thou dismayed. Don't be discouraged. Take all the people of war with thee. We're going to take them all this time, not just 3,000. And arise, go up to Ai, and here he is. See, 
I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And so where there had been defeat, now there is victory. So God loves to bring his people back and loves to show them mercy where there's been defeat. So where someone's fallen, and they're going to be a terrible fall. Think of Peter. He had a terrible fall, didn't he? Blasphemed. He's cursing the fact that he knew the Lord. And yet God brought him back, filled him with the Holy Spirit, restored him, and he became his spokesman. The same mouth that had cursed him is the same mouth that's declaring his resurrection and the blessings that he's going to be willing to pour out on anyone that would repent. And that's what we have here. So, you know, in the Bible, you may not know this, but if you do your Bible readings, you might. There's another place in the Bible that speaks about the Valley of Achor, and it's in the book of Hosea. Talks about it there. And God told Hosea, the prophet, he says, I want you to marry a prostitute named Gomer. So Hosea was ordered by God to marry somebody that he knew would be unfaithful to him. Why? Because he's prophetically acting out what Israel, how they've been unfaithful to God. Marries Gomer. She's a prostitute, continues to be a prostitute after he marries her. How would you like to come home to that on Father's Day? Well, that's what he had. But Hosea said to Israel, he said, even though you've been unfaithful like Gomer, you played the harlot and you're going to experience judgment, the trouble of Achor. He says, God will bring you back. That's the promise. And that's what God told Israel. He said, you've gone after other lovers, Balaam and other lovers, and forgotten me. He says, I've been faithful to you, never gone anywhere. I'm the one that's blessed you, and you run after them like they've done something for you. And God says, in spite of all of that, yet, here's what God says to Israel. Listen, Hosea 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, speaking of Israel, and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her, despite all of what she's done. And he said, And I will give her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor, not for a valley of judgment, he says, I'll give her the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. He says, look, you're in the valley of Achor. When he's speaking this to him, they were under judgment. You're there. He goes, I'm going to bring you out of there because this isn't going to be where you're stayed down with a pile of rocks on top of you, he tells Israel. He says, no, this isn't a valley of judgment. This is going to become a door of hope. I'm going to raise you up out of there in my mercy. And why is that? Because I've already said it once, God delights in mercy. He does. In James, it says, mercy rejoices over judgment. Doesn't it? Amen. Amen. I mean, all of us deserve to have a pile of rocks put on top of us. We deserve to have the place Achan has. But guess who took that judgment for us? That's what the cross is all about. Amen. God's judgment was put on the Lord Jesus Christ so we can receive mercy. We need to never forget that. We all were in the Valley of Achor at one time. And maybe today you're saying, man, I am like Achan. I've lied, I've stole, I've covetous, brought trouble in my life, my family's life. I'm just experiencing misery. I'm lying in the valley of Achor. And God says, then look up, because I've made the valley of Achor a door of hope for you. If you'll just repent, 
He says, I'll have mercy on you and the blessings can flow in your life. Just repent. Return to the Father. So there's many lessons to be learned here in Joshua 7 and the story of Achan's sin. just want to give four of them to end. And one of them is as Christians, when what we see happening there, we have always got to be vigilant to keep our hearts clear from sinful lust and covetousness, doesn't it? Isn't that what the Bible says? Keep thy heart, Proverbs 4, with all diligence. Why do we need to keep our heart with all diligence? It says, for out of it come the issues of life. So we've got to control our eyes no matter what it is, whether it's women, things, whatever. Whatever it is that you want, you've got to have it in your heart to where, no, I'm going to do things God's way. I'm going to get things the way He wants me to have it before you see the spoil. If you haven't determined that, that spoil is going to draw you away. It's going to draw you into taking it. And how do we avoid sin? What did Jesus tell him in the garden? He says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation because he says the spirit is indeed willing, but our flesh is what? Our weak is, is, is overcome so easily without the Lord's presence in our life. The second thing we need to learn is that sin is always serious and brings about God's displeasure. And we can't hide anything. We've said this. You can't hide anything from the all-seeing eyes of our Creator. And so the best thing that we can do, and David found this out, he tried to act like he hadn't committed that sin with Bathsheba and killed Uriah. He was miserable, miserable for at least a year. Until what happened? Until finally he brought his sin out to light, confessed it, let the blood wash it clean. And that's what we need to do, don't we? Amen. Not hold on to sin, confess, forsake, and let the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanse us from all sin and all unrighteousness, even can cleanse away those wrong desires that we have. And the other thing is that defeat for a Christian is never the final word. It's never the final word. Chapter 7 didn't end. It, chapter 8 picks up, doesn't it? Defeat is never the final word. Judgment came, but when they dealt with the sin, God sent them right back to receive the blessing, didn't he? That's the way God works. He delights in mercy. And the last thing, the last point I want to say here is that we have always got to live with our eyes, not fixed on the world and its allurements, but we have got to keep our eyes fixed on God and on his glory. On God and His glory. That's the way we're supposed to be living, isn't it? Let everything be done to the glory of God. And we need to be ready to obey His word and not take His word lightly. And then we won't experience the trouble of Achor, but the victory of Jericho. Amen? That's what we need to do. Amen. So we'll end there. Praise the Lord. And Father, we thank You for the word and the warning that you've given us. Not to depress us, not to condemn us, Lord, but that in our hearts we can learn to properly fear you. Keep things in perspective, Lord, that if we'll just do that and not take your word lightly, but give heed to what you say. This is my beloved son. Obey him. Listen to him. Give us hearts, Lord, that want to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and your voice and to obey what we read, what we hear, what you speak, how you point us to what you want us to do, how we treat others, that we can have a conscience that is clear that when we pray, we can know we have the petitions that we've desired from you and that we can walk with you and experience your presence and fullness in our lives. 
I just ask that you'll do that for us all here, that this word will take effect and take root in our hearts and prepare us for the days ahead. And I thank you that you'll do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.